Cast. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. A Great and Significant Work. That's how my guest from episode 130, David Horsager, describes today's guest's work. Today's guest is Dr. Toby Travis. Dr. Travis is founder of TrustEd, a framework for school improvement focused on developing trusted leaders. The application of his research serves as the basis for the TrustEd School Leader 360 assessment, which schools worldwide utilize to inform school improvement initiatives. In addition, he is an executive consultant with the Global School Consulting Group, an adjunct professor for the International Graduate Program of Educators for the State University of New York College at Buffalo, and an experienced teacher and administrator of PS through 12 schools. His new book, and the one we'll talk about a lot today, is titled Trust Ed, The Bridge to School Improvement. Join me in welcoming Dr. Toby Travis to the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Dr. Travis, thanks for being here today. Thank you, Earl. My pleasure. Oh, I'm I'm looking forward to this conversation. I say that with all my guests, and I mean it with all my guests, but I definitely mean it with, with you uh, here because we're going to talk about something that is kind of a new passion project with me. I've, I've had a couple of guests on here recently talking about leadership and education, and, and uh, that's a field that I know that you have a lot of uh, background in. Uh, but before we get there, I want to start you off with the kind of the baseline question I ask everybody with. When you hear the phrase responsible leadership, what does that mean to you? Well, when I think about a leader who is responsible, uh, I think it's a leader who understands the value of the team he's leading. You know, the school setting where I primarily work, um, we have to understand that the essence of the school is the teachers. Uh, It's not the curriculum. It's not the building. It's not the facilities. It's not the technology. It's not the students. It's not the parents. The essence of the school are the school employees uh, and and very specifically the teachers. And in the corporate world, I would say the same is true, is um, a responsible leader is one who understands the highest valued element within their business or their organization are the people they're leading. And so to be a responsible leader is one who understands the value of those uh, they are leading. And really, and we'll talk more about this, I'm sure, but the idea of leadership is really the idea of support. How well are you supporting your team and providing guidance, clarity of direction, uh, resources, you know, to, to do what they're tasked to do. But a responsible leader is one who understands and highly values um, those they're leading. Oh, no, I love that answer a lot. And, you know, kind of on that that support note, um, you know, your book and that we'll talk about here kind of as a backdrop for our conversation is uh, uh, Trust Ed, The Bridge to School Improvement. And I, I like your uh, kind of choice of iconography there because there's not much more that relies on and and needs the level of support is as a bridge, which is kind of the logo on the cover of the book. So let's talk about that for a minute. Like, how did you get to that that kind of iconography of using a bridge for this context? Well, I always like to give full credit to my wife. You know, I'd come through the doctoral program, had all this research and all this information, you know, that I want to share with the world. And but you also know that people are visual learners and and people tend to process ideas in a deeper way if they can put something visually to it. And I was really looking for a, a means to, and a way to talk about the complexities of trust and trusted leadership. And you know, it was my wife, uh, Tanya, said one night at the table, she goes, well, sweetheart, isn't it really just like a bridge? Well, that just lit up uh, candles in, in 
really rockets in my mind and started to think more deeply about that. And as we look at the components, now there actually are more components to a bridge than what we identify uh, in the um, in the book, but we use six of the major components of a suspension bridge to literally hang all these elements, um, these complexities of trusted leadership. And I also think what's partly funny about it is as a child, I was terrified of bridges. And, you know, I, I think it's because uh, when you step onto a bridge, you are making a life or death decision. You're, you are placing your trust uh, in, in the structure itself. You're placing your trust in those who are responsible for building it, maintaining it, etc. And so I think, it, yeah, it makes a great analogy that uh, when we are looking at leadership, it is critical that all the components are in place so that we can travel from where we are to where we want to be. Yeah, no, I love it. And and again, I love the book here. And and as, uh, you know, uh, one of my friends, former guest on here back in episode, I think 130 or somewhere near, uh, David Horsager has oh, yeah. the quote here on, on the front of the book, a great and significant work. And, you know, I agree because he and I talked a lot about trust and you just mentioned trust as well. And and like you said, that 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 trust that is what makes everything work. Um. And, and those components, right? The di- disparate components of the bridge. And you start uh, kind of with the foundation. So let's talk about that for a second. Like, why is that such an important piece? Well, of course, uh, a bridge and its stability and reliability is only as good as what it's sitting on and, and what, it, uh, what supports uh, every other element of the bridge. In leadership, the foundation is really the values and the beliefs that are owned by the leader and shared by the group. And so when we talk about assessing, developing that leadership element of of trusted leadership, um, the very first component we have to look at is, okay, do we have... Do we have very clearly defined and established values and beliefs? Are they known? Are they articulated? Are they authentic? And and that's the, the place where it all begins. Yeah. And I think that is, is the critical piece there, right? Is, is the, uh, are they authentic? Are they articulated? And are they upheld? Right. Well, and that's where we go into what I call the substructure of trust. On a bridge, the substructure is all about supporting, connecting all the elements of the bridge to the foundation. Well, here in leadership, it's, it's consistency of being who we say we are. Well, we may have these values and beliefs, foundation, but are we really connecting and processing everything that we do, practices, protocols, procedures, uh, even product, if we're in the, in a business setting, to who, what, to who and what we say we are? Because that's where leadership will often, um, become distrusted, is if we say we believe one thing, but we don't apply those beliefs and those values, to how we operate our, our business or our work or lead our school. You know, the one thing that, that I've noticed here, like kind of right off the bat is we're, you know, kind of talking about schools and, and, and yes, to tie into corporate world, but uh, you know, the one word I haven't u- heard you use yet that, that is kind of synonymous with education is, is curriculum. And, and, and what I like about that, and, and I don't know if this is intentional or not, but what I like about it kind of being a layman on the outside looking in is, is yes, curriculum is 100% important to this this process. But if you don't have that trust, if you don't have that foundation, it doesn't matter how well your curriculum is put together. If, if the, the teachers can't teach the curriculum, can't connect with the student to transfer the learning, the curriculum really doesn't matter, right? Well, it does matter, um, but you're right. It is always going to be secondary to uh, relationship. You know, there's a very popular social media post going around that talks about um, Maslow before Bloom. And what that's referring to is, you know, um, Adam, um, Abraham, Abraham Maslow talked about, you know, people's needs. Mm-hmm. And those needs need to be met before we can get on to Bloom's taxonomy of learning, which is what educators talk about, you know, the, the, the levels of learning. Well, before we can get to talking about real teaching and pedagogy and instructional practice and curriculum, there has to be a solid, trusted relational connect between the student and the teacher. And I would go on to argue between the teacher and the school leader. Um, and that's, in fact, what we find the number one indicator of school success 
is trusted school leadership. And what's interesting about that, Earl, is it doesn't seem to matter how we define our measurement of success. When we look at studies where we're looking at high levels of student achievement in those schools, what we find are highly trusted leaders. If we measure success by teacher retention rates, again, the number one indicator of high levels of retention is trusted school leadership. If we look at volunteerism, in fact, there was a major study done on the use of discretionary time and energy. Basically, how many people are willing to volunteer, whether they're employees or just community members or parents? Well, in those schools where the highest levels of volunteerism are seen or people have voluntarily used their discretionary time to benefit the school, in those same schools, we have the highest levels of trusted leadership. Uh, financial bottom line, uh, very important for especially private school sector, in the schools that are most financially stable, uh, what we find are high levels of trusted leadership. And it goes on and on and on. But it is it is the measurement, it is the element that we need to be paying the closest amount of attention to. And sadly, what I've learned and seen in, in my work over the years is that although most school leaders would identify, yes, I see the value, the importance, the foundational work of having uh, trusted leaders in our school. Very, very few are intentionally assessing it, developing improvement plans, um, making sure that they have strategies and practices in place to protect it uh, and, and in some cases to repair it. Um, it, is, it is the issue but sadly, uh, it is not given the priority of, well, you give the example of, you know, curriculum initiatives. There are many and, and they are needed because it is about the learning and the content of the learning. But often what happens is a curriculum initiative or an instructional practice or assessment initiative is rolled out and it's short lived because what's foundational to the success of any school initiative is there has to be ownership, there has to be buy-in, and that comes through um, trusted relationships between the administrators and the teachers. Mm. No, 100%. And and that's a lot trickier to do in this environment than, than say, the corporate world, right? Because in, in the corporate world, you get to be kind of face-to-face, touch uh, points, eight hours, maybe more a day with somebody, but for, for student, uh, for students and teachers in particular, and even I would say, you know, in my experiences, the, the, the teachers with the administrators, there's very, very limited, uh, contact to build that trust. So you have to be very intentional. I would assume about how you use that time that you are in contact with each other, right? Yeah, exactly. In fact, it's one of the things that I work with schools a lot on is looking at how can we restructure the organizational operations of the school to disperse leadership as much as possible. Um, unfortunately, in many, many schools, the vast majority, the organizational structures are set up in which, um, well, they, they kind of position the leaders for failure. You know, I think back years ago when I was a high school principal, actually a secondary school principal, so this was junior and senior high, but I had 46 direct reports, Earl. <laughs> Wow. Well, you know, how, how could I possibly, in a deep and authentic way, support 46 individuals? Uh, part of my doctoral program was uh, a study in what's called span of control theory. And that's just a fancy way of talking about at what point does our effectiveness as a leader, as a manager, um, decrease based on the number of people we're supporting? And there are variables in, in the answer to that question, but as a general rule of thumb, it's six to 10 people. Right. You and I can support well about a half a dozen people, maybe more, depending on what the work is. Well, in many school systems, again, the leaders are set up for failure. They, they do not have the capacity to support um, teachers well. And so this is work that has to be done in, again, dispersing leadership, raising up leaders, empowering levels of leadership down to the, the, the closest level as possible to where the decisions are being implemented. And um, that's, that's important work. Yeah. Well, and, and as you've pointed out here a couple of times, too, when you take it to that next level, you know, that, that, that teacher has that many quote unquote direct reports. <laughs> right. Exactly. Students that way, right. right. And, oh, yeah. and, 
if unfortunately for them and a lot of times it's it's direct reports who are you know depending on what grade they're in dealing with all the developmental issues puberty acting out things like that um so yeah it's it's I think that's the, again, why I love this book so much is, is I think we've done a great disservice. I'll just say in this country, because that's where we live of, of tying in that importance and that connection between leadership and education. Right. No, no. And, and we've inherited it largely, you know, right. the, part of the, the real struggle with school reform is the DNA of how school operates is so deep, you know. So, you know, for example, when, when you're trying to initiate uh, positive change, um, changing structures, delivery of education structures, well, parents uh, grow up and they survive, you know, the old model. And, they, and so in their minds, you know, well, that was good enough for me. You know, I survived. You know, this is now their definition of what, what, what a good school is. Unfortunately, we've learned, especially in the last 20 years with brain research and so many other things, uh, how many things we were doing wrong. You know, when I was a kid in school, it really is, was, was terrible, it was pathetic education compared to what we know how to deliver today. But when we try to implement what we know now is best practice, is going to meet real needs and provide deep and lasting learning for students. Well, that looks very, very different than what the generation before them had. And so now part of the work that you have to do in change management is bringing parents and community along to understand, no, here is a better way, but that takes trusted relationships. And, and again, it all comes back to you can drive change and you can produce a better quality program for students and teachers, but the work that has to be done first is ensuring there are strong levels of trust in the leadership that is guiding the change that's going on. Yeah, again, and, and that is uh, 100% on point. And, and we have, and I think we're going to continue to have more and more of these types of conversations here as, as we you know, go through these kind of social justice movements and things like that. Cause you know, I've had a lot of conversations with folks lately, you know, I've, I've talked about it here quite a bit. I grew up in Northeast Tennessee and uh, with some of these things going on and, and talking about how, how can people say with a straight face that the civil war was not about slavery. It was about states' rights. I was like, look, that's exactly the verbiage that was used when I was in school was this was a state's rights issue where I came from. And so you can't really get mad at them for, for saying that that's how they were educated. How do we change that narrative to be a little bit more, let's say factual. And that's kind of at the, the basis kind of what you're talking about here, right? Is how do we change the way people were taught to the way we're teaching people now, whatever the subject may be. Right. Well, and there's so many wonderful things that are happening in the world. There are so many really great, um, positive movements in the education world that we can celebrate and, and to learn from. I'm sure perhaps you and your listeners are familiar with, with the work that's been heralded in Finland now for years. You know, in Finland, it's a small country. And so we, we can't just copy and paste um, what they've done. They, they do have a, a limited context and, and larger countries have a much more complex uh, set of uh, elements to deal with. But what we see and can learn from uh, a country like Finland is the valuing of teachers, treating them as professionals, um, focusing on the instruction and the curriculum, making sure that less is more. In other words, really focusing on what do students need for their future rather than teaching them based on our past. Right. You know, in, in the, in the Finnish, in Finn structure rather, uh, you know, their class days are about half the length of what we have here in the U.S. and they're outperforming us like crazy, but they're doing it in half the time. Well, how is that possible? And they do it largely without traditional practices like homework that, you know, in, in many settings, um, you know, that, that's seen as kind of a, a measurement of rigor. Well, it has nothing to do with rigor. It's, it's a cultural practice is what we've discovered. And if we really focus in on what is best for students and we empower professionals with autonomy to do their work well, and focus on student needs for their future, well, that looks a whole lot different than reading, writing, and arithmetic that uh, that we experienced you know, as as young young people and as young adults. 
Yeah, no, again, I, I agree with you hundred percent. And, and some of these, some of these better understandings of, of uh, things like, like autism and dyslexia mm. and things like that being kind of better in, ingrained uh, that's gotta be making some kind of impact, right? Well, it certainly is. And, and there we've, we've made some great, great strides. Um, again, over the, especially over the last 20 years, we you know this understanding that every student is unique and that we need to teach to the child's uniqueness. Um, you know, sadly, the, the American or the Western, uh, traditional school model is born out of the industrial, um, uh, age, you know, where we have them set up like factories. So, you know, we, we group students by manufacturing date, not based on their learning or their learning needs. And uh, we've really got to understand that, uh, for, for education to be of greatest value and support to a student, we need to understand that student. Um, I talk a lot with teachers when we're doing teacher trainings to be concept driven rather than content driven. You know, what are the key concepts that, that students need to be successful in moving on to whatever is next for them? Uh, and then we look at content to support those concepts. But those, those types of approaches to education uh, are happening in the world. We do see some wonderful successes of that. And uh, we just need to be uh, modeling it more. We need to be setting teachers up for success. And, uh, and, and it's a challenge because there are so many complexities to it, whether we're in the public or the private sector, uh, that, um, that, well, it, I'm thinking where, where my mind's going is there is such a cry for accountability. We, we want accountability for, you know, our tax dollars. We want accountability for our tuition dollars. And really the accountability ought to come down to, well, where does the student end up? You know, let, yeah. let's, let's look at, you know, where, where are the students able? Are they able to go on to their aspirations? And for some, that may be college or university, re-university. Others, it may be a business or, or military career. Um, are we setting students up for their success? And that should be our metric of how to hold teachers accountable. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Right. And, and um, you know, I had a lady on here. I want to say she was back in around episode 40 something, Lois Letchford. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of her, but uh, she she talked about this type of thing using herself and her son. She's got a book called uh, Reversed, a memoir. And essentially the story is uh, they were living in Australia at the time. And the teacher referred to her son as the worst student she'd had in 20 mm -hmm. years. What it turns out is, is he had a form of dyslexia and he had a, sure, a learning right. issue. Once they figure that out and, and Lois basically took up the mantle to prove that teacher wrong and started teaching her son, you know, he graduated just a few years ago with a, a PhD in, I can't remember the mathematics field from Oxford. Uh, so he went from the worst student that this teacher had seen in 20 years. And now he's got a PhD in high level mathematics, uh, all because of what you just said, the, the, taking the time to, to figure out how to teach that student. And that sounds, you know, most people listening here, right. You, that may sound like something that, you know, well, that's great for that one individual. We can't afford to do that for every single student. But I would say when you look at some of these, uh, these numbers that you, you were kind of mentioning there, right. You've got some districts where you have say a 95 or 98% graduation rate. But, you know, when you look at like literacy, numeracy and things like that, they're, like in the low, like teens of percents uh, of the students, we we almost can't afford to not spend this money to to invest in those students to bring those numbers up. So when the graduation actually means something, right? Yes, right, right. Well, and and it is expensive. <laughs> I mean, there's there's right. no way to get around it. Uh, you, the, we have to figure out the the financial end of this. And again, what we see uh, in in many examples of where uh, both communities and even um, country governments, uh, or you look uh, in smaller settings, even, you know, within private school settings, that no when, when the resources are committed, it does make a difference. But it's not just throwing money at it. You know, that I think that's the part that has frustrated taxpayers in the United States for so long is, is they feel like, well, we keep throwing money at it and we're not fixing it. And, and actually, there's, there's a point 
there. Yes, right. it's because we're trying to fix the wrong thing, and 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 that's where I again I come back to. We've got to we've got to get to first of all the, those foundational basics of of leadership is where it all comes down to. That has to be addressed. And, and right now we have a turnstile that's going on in school leaders like never before. You know, and I'm sure you're aware, you know, we have, we're in the midst of a national teacher shortage. We have been for years. The, the pandemic has exacerbated that uh, greatly, but we have an even greater, um, situation of, of, um, of, of lack of qualified, uh, skilled and and lifetime committed uh, leaders at the administrative level, and it's because the job in this way the structures are set up again sets them up for failure. Um, there's there's many factors to that, but to me that's the issue that has to be addressed first, um, and then everything else uh, is is better supported once we've got that leadership piece. Is in is is in order. The bridge is constructed, as it were. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And and you know, listeners, again, if we haven't made the connection between this and and the private sector, your your business is clear enough. Uh, I'll just point this out. This is where your your next generation of employees is coming from, right? And so if we're not taking care of them at this level and helping nurture those those skills, those abilities as they come up through. Uh, you're, you're not going to have the, the quality and qualified employees that you need for your business to go forward. So no matter how you slice this, this is a kind of corporate problem as well, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's been said, and, and I don't know who we can attribute the, the original quote to, but, you know, the future of our world is walking in the hallways of our schools today. And it's, it is true. Um, and if we want to understand what our future looks like, we just have to look in the halls and look at these classrooms, look at these athletic fields. And, and this is where we are raising up our future. And, and we all have an investment in that. And it is, um, it's, it's, it's rife with opportunity and, and I think great possibilities, but there's also areas of great concern if we do not address it and do not prioritize it. Yeah, 100%. Now, I do have a little bit of a, a of a younger crowd that listens to here, uh, listens to this podcast as well. Um, and, you know, they're hearing this and, and we've talked a lot about the, the teachers, we've talked a lot about the administrators, but what responsibilities do students have in the education process? Oh, sure. Well, you know, it, it all comes down to engagement in the learning. And when we see this, the students who are the, um, highest achievers, well, they're the ones who are, they've identified their own motivation. And so when I'm talking with students, I often want to explore what are your aspirations? What do you dream of? And, and what do you, what do you hope for in the future? Now, some kids kind of look at you and give a blank, I don't know. And, uh, and, and they need to be given permission to dream. And, and so we'll do some role playing and some things like that just to get the, the juices flowing. Um, talk about what movies they love and what kind of characters and, and what kind of work or action are, are those heroes involved in? And then thinking about, well, what does that look like in the real world? Because when we find, when, when students have, when they've got a mission, you know, when they've got a vision of their future, whether that actually comes about or not, in fact, is what we found in the studies. But if they do have a mission, they've got a focus that propels them to be engaged in the learning. This is where they're going to find success. And so I encourage kids to find partnerships with adults on their campus who can support their dreams, support their beliefs, and, uh, and, and cling to that. And that's where, again, they will find their motivation to get involved in the learning and really be a, a partner in the process, not just a receiver uh, of a, you know, a kind of an old transmissive approach of education. You know, the, the better the education is, the better the, the teacher talks. No, be a participant and, and own your learning. Set your own goals. Don't wait for the teacher. And, uh, Again, um, where do you want to be? What are your dreams for the future? Um, make it happen. Um, and when you get that level of engagement and ownership, it's transformational to what happens in uh, a student's level of achievement. 
Yes. No, I love it. And I especially love that last piece, that ownership. That was something I really, really wish that I had somebody explain to me as I was going through school. Um, because it was a lack of that, that understanding, that ownership and, and given permission, as you put it, I love how you put that of, of, you know, it, it's okay to, to like school. It's okay to be smart. It's okay to, uh, it, it's just, it's okay. You know, whatever it is, it's okay. Cause you know, my relationship with education really isn't that warm and fuzzy. Mm, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, you know, I mean, in, in sixth grade, uh, I took one of the aptitude tests and I scored really well on it. And teachers started wanting to do things like advance me in grades. And, you know, that that I didn't have anybody there to talk me through what that meant. To me, it just made me feel like I was a weirdo, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. and I didn't take that opportunity because I didn't want to be like, I don't want to be the weird kid that got advanced. And now I'm dealing with kids who are older than me that I don't know. I didn't have any of that support system. And what ultimately happened uh, in my story was because of that, I was always bored with school. Uh, I didn't do my homework. I acted out in class. I didn't do, you know, I passed because I was able to take the tests and, and, and the teachers granted me a little grace with that. But I wish I had had somebody, whether it was a teacher, an administrator, another student, which, you know, it'd probably be a little hard to find another sixth grader with that level of emotional intelligence, but I'm sure they exist. But nobody sat down with me and said, hey, dude, it's okay. Take that bump in, in, in the class. You earned it. Be the, be the smart guy. You earned it. And, and that's kind of what I heard there is, is you need to be able to, to be comfortable being you and, and figuring out what it is you want to do and, and, and do what it takes to get there, right? And it's hard, you know. It, it, we we live in a in a world where there uh, is so much uh, pressure from uh, the culture and social media and friends, um, and yet that idea of ownership is so important, Earl. Um, when when kids own their learning, uh, again, it, it's it's transformational, and and it helps them kind of filter out. Where to put their energies? And, uh, we, we spend so much time. And unfortunately, there are so many models that are still supporting this idea that it's all about the grade. And that is slowly changing. Um, but there, there's still so much focus on, on the task of passing the test rather than about the learning. And, and this is something though that, that kids can, even in the midst of, of those kinds of cultures or those kinds of school situations where, no, it's still very much driven by, you know, pass this test so you can pass the next test so you can pass, pass the next test. If they can identify an end game, where's this taking me though? Um, they can even survive in that very, uh, you know, basic of, of educational structures. Yeah, no, and I think that's an important piece there too. I was reading on um, uh, Google, and Google put out some some statistics on their hiring practice. They were talking about this thing here, um, and and what they found was your essentially your degree period, whether you got a master's degree, a PhD, or even that you got a degree, really only matters for about I want to say they said the first two years of employment, and after that. It, it stopped because of the way technology changes. It stops mattering as much. The, the, the playing field gets even out a lot more versus, you know, some high school kid who's just very gifted at, at, at coding and things like that versus a PhD. They, they, after two years, they're pretty much on the same playing field. What, what separates them are these things that you're talking about here. The, are they adaptable? Uh, can they embrace new technologies? Are they constantly learning and all of those things? And, and, uh, yeah, the, the corporate world is changing and, and everything is changing. Uh, but yeah, it, 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 it's a little bit more important that you're a learner versus what you have learned, if that makes right. sense, right? It, no, absolutely. The, those dispositions, if you will, right? It, is is the student uh, able to think critically? Are they able to collaborate with others? Are they able to have a global perspective? I mean, those those dispositions, those competencies, if you will, are so much more valued 
in all of life than how many AP courses they took. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> no, this is, these are the skill sets that I want to hire as a businessman. It, it doesn't matter what really what's, what's on their transcript. No, it, it may matter to a point where it, right, it got them into a college program, but, Right. I've, I've seen those studies as well. I think the last I saw, uh, you know, at the, at the monetary benefit level, you now have to get to the master's level, uh, before it makes a difference. Uh, there is no, you know, whether it's a high school graduate going into a, a trade or tech school and somebody completing a four year degree bachelor's, well, no, there's no compensation difference there. In fact, the tech school might make more. Um, yeah. it's not until you've complete your master's and, and go on before you see even a financial benefit as far as the education. But even then it's short lived, uh, because it's not about the classes you've taken, the courses or the expertise in, in content knowledge. It's in practice. Um, how do we do what we do with the people we're working with? It's all about relationships. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And uh, so listeners, once you get a copy of the book and you look at it, you're going to realize that uh, pretty much uh, Dr. Travis and I have been talking about, uh, about the structures of the bridge. Now, I kind of want to, uh, kind of bump ahead here to, to chapter eight in the book, a bridge mm. in need of repair. And right. we kind of talked about some of this stuff a little bit here already, but I think we can all agree that when it comes to education and some of the systems around it, that the bridge is in need of repair. Um, so what can, what can local school systems administrators, what can, what can they do to help, uh, help fix their bridge? Well, sometimes we inherit, um, a broken bridge or a bridge with potholes, right? And we didn't necessarily create them. Unfortunately, as the leader, you do own it. And so you, you do need to repair it. Um, and if you've um, been the source of causing the, the level of distrust and if you want to stay in, you know, in your role as a leader, you, you must repair it. Um, what we identify or I identify in the book are actually uh, four research-based steps, and I won't go through all of that right now, but I'll share just a couple of them that are just so important for people to understand that when we're talking about building or restoring trust, rather, um, it is just like how trust was built. And what I mean by that is it takes time and it has to be intentional. And so when I'm working with school leaders or even business leaders that are working on a restoration plan, how do we restore trust? I counsel them, make promises and then keep them. Yes. So look at, okay, what are some, what are some small promises? You know, so uh, how can you consistently make promises that you can fulfill in a short amount of time and consistently do that? This is what builds trust. And it's not changing policy, although policies may need to be updated or changed. It's not some grandiose action of, uh, you know, public humility or, and, um, you know, and then, you know, buying everybody a gift card. You know, that it's not, those aren't the practices that restore trust. It's make promises and keep them. Make a promise and keep it and just keep that over and over. And over time, and studies show it takes about seven months. Um, that trust will be restored. Uh, another element of, of trust restoration or how to restore trust is this idea of extending trust to others. What we've discovered is the more I extend trust to someone else, they trust me in return. And so again, I come back to this idea of dispersing leadership, empowering others, you know, hire well, empower well. Uh, hire the right people and then trust them to do their job and support them well. Uh, do not be a micromanager. Do not be constantly over someone's shoulder unless they're asking for it. And when you trust others, then that trust is reciprocated. Mm -hmm. Now, that is that is extremely powerful there. And I, I like that, you know, because there's always that, well, is trust given or is trust earned? And, you know, I think the answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> right. Both, yeah. right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, it's both. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, because don't you think, Earl, I mean, we all kind of, we, we size each other up the moment we meet. Uh, there, there's probably about a, a 90 second you know, thing that goes on where we're sizing someone up. But that's not trust. That's just kind of, that's first impressions. That's you get a read of the person. True 
levels of trust take time and in multiple interactions. And, and this is, it's the nature of trust. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and, and you're 100% right. That's how I try to kind of treat folks. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to like give you the keys to my house right off the bat. Uh, but, you know, I'm going to trust you until you prove yourself untrustworthy. Uh, now, I'm going to trust you kind of in increments. Right. Um, but yeah, in, until you prove yourself untrustworthy, like, I mean, my point of view is why wouldn't I? You, you haven't shown me that you're untrustworthy. So why would I assume that you're untrustworthy? Um, and, and, People tend to, and I don't know exactly why this is, but what I've noticed is people tend to, it's like the old Henry Ford saying, says, whether you think you can or you can't, you're probably right, right? It's whether you think somebody is trustworthy or not, you're probably right. Because if you don't trust them, they know you don't trust them and they're less likely to value, respect, and trust you in return. So they're less likely to keep their promises to you, which reinforces the fact that they're untrustworthy, right? Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. So well, and, and if I may, going back to the classroom, you know, we've discovered and, and we know that the most important element in student success is the teacher. And specifically there, it's the teacher's relationship with the student. So it's not about the quality of the pedagogy or the instructional practice of the teacher, although that is very important. What is of utmost importance is does the student feel and believe they are supported by the teacher, uh, really emotionally? And if they feel that support, the student is going to get engaged and find their own motivation for success. Um, and that's, that's the, and the same thing is true in the teacher administrator relationship. If the teacher feels well supported by their leader, by their administrator, they're going to get engaged to a greater level and therefore their students benefit. I mean, it's, it's all about relationships. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, um, you know, you're kind of talking about the, the Rosenthal, uh, the Pygmalion effect there, right? Mm-hmm. Is what, what you get back is kind of dictated, uh, predicated on what you, how you perceive that person. And, and again, this is the same thing we do in businesses. As soon as somebody walks onto your team, you're doing the same things that students are doing to teachers, that teachers are doing to students, administrators doing to teachers. There, there's not a big difference, right? If you think that somebody's coming onto your team and they're going to fail, you're probably right because you're probably going to treat them like a failure. They're going to feel like a failure. So they're going to be unsupported and they're going to fail. And that's what, you know, you want to intentionally build a culture of success, a culture of trust. And, and again, that doesn't just happen. And this is why there are um, consultants galore and coaches uh, that, that help administrators with this because there, there are intentional practices, policies, protocols, procedures that you can put in place to help create and support that culture. But it has to be intentionally done. It doesn't just happen. Yep. A hundred percent. No, this has been a great conversation. And again, uh, listeners, uh, we've been talking with Dr. Toby Travis, author of Trust Ed, The Bridge to School Improvement. Um, I mean, this is a fantastic book, and I feel like we've covered uh, a pretty decent amount of ground here. But uh, before we look to wrap things up. Is there anything we didn't get a chance to cover that you really want to leave listeners with? Well, I'm almost always asked, girl, for, you know, at least some sort of strategy. And the book is full of examples in each of the, the six components that we talk about. Um, you know, what, what's kind of a, um, you know, what, what, what can I do different tomorrow that'll make me more trusted or create a more trusted work environment? And so if I may, let me just, you know, share a couple of things that I have seen that have just transformed the work environments and my work as a leader and, and in mentoring other leaders. And, and one of those practices is we used email only for information. Hmm. We do not permit grievances to be submitted in email. And um, if someone sends me an angry email, the only response they will get is, let's talk. Let's set up a time to connect. And I will not engage in trying to solve a problem uh, via email, nor do I let my administrators or teachers do this. And what we've found is when you value face-to-face conversation, when you value relationship, it is transformational. 
And people, you know, when they, for some reason, when we, their thumbs are on the keys or their fingers are on a keyboard, um, they will write things and text things they would never say in person. Or they might be misunderstood. And so by implementing that one simple practice or change to how we manage grievances and problems in our work environment, it drove um, the... Um, the positive nature of the environment of, of the workplace to a much, much better place. So one simple practice, but transformational in, in its results. Mm. No, I love that. I love that a lot. Um, yeah. I mean, because that's it, right? I mean, the, when email people forget. So I, I've got two theories on what you just said. One is people forget the importance of body language and their messaging and you lose all of that in email. Uh, the other thing is, is in uh, there's a gentleman named uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, and he he's done a lot of work on uh, psychology, and and particularly uh, the title of his book is on killing, and it talks about what what does it take for one human to be able to kill another human being, and it's you stop seeing them as a human being, right? Mm, right I mean, right. He, he goes back and he gives a ton of examples through wars past about how sworn hated enemies would go out of the way to not kill the other person unless they absolutely had to. But when you are talking to email, you're not, as you said, you're not talking to a person, you're talking to an email address. And it's a lot yeah. easier to be mean and nasty to an email address than it is a person. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so you said there was another one. Oh, well, um, well, I could give you 20 of them. Um, <laughs> so um, never making a decision in the moment. Yes. And, you know, this is something when I'm training like high school uh, or elementary school principals and we do sessions on um, how do you manage difficult conversations with employees or students or parents. And one of the ways to just establish actually trust and it's just good practice is be a good listener, and, and we could talk a lot about what does that mean, what does it look like to be a good listener, but also Make sure, police yourself that you will not make a decision in the moment, but that you will be all ears. You listen, you want to hear all sides. And, um, just again, uh, it's, it's a practice of self-control to not be pressured into making a quick decision, but always taking time to ensure to the best of your ability, you're getting all sides of a story, all perspectives of a, of a situation before a decision is made. And one way to do that is just to have that personal practice of my job in a conversation with a distressed person is to be a listener, to be as empathetic as possible. Doesn't mean that I agree with them, but I can express things like saying, this must be very difficult for you. I can't imagine what you're going through. Please help me understand, you know, speak in an empathetic way, listen, take notes, speak back um, their their frustrations to you, uh, ask them if they have ideas for solutions, and then wrap up the meeting by saying, I'm going to give this some, some serious thought and consideration, and I will try to get back to you in a very prompt amount of time. Thank you for coming. But don't get pressured into giving them whatever answer they're looking for in that moment. That actually builds trust. Yeah. No, I love it. It reminds me of the the late great Colin Powell would, uh, was famous mm. for saying, "Never overreact to an overreaction." Yes, uh, right. So, well, right. Dr. be the calm in the room. And, and if I may, yes. Earl, so another one of my mentors uh, often would talk about. He'd say, "Toby, are you a thermometer or a thermostat?" Yes. And are you setting the temperature or are you just responding? And so, you know, we, we want to be the thermostat in the room. And it's our job to set the calm, our job to be solution focused. And we can intentionally do that through, through our demeanor and through, again, self-policing, controlling ourselves. I love it. I love it. Well, Dr. Travis, I, uh, I really have enjoyed this conversation we've had here, and I think my listeners will as well. If they want to find out more about you, uh, where to get a copy of the book, maybe uh, you know, bring you in to chat with their organization, uh, what is a good place for them to, uh, to find you? Well, they can always go to trustedschool.org. 
Or they can just put my name in, Toby Travis, that's T-O-B-Y-T-R-A-V-I-S dot com or dot org. The book is available on Amazon. And so uh, that's that's uh, the best place to get a copy of the, of the book is through Amazon, currently available uh, in print and uh, Kindle. Uh, Spanish version is in the works and as well as an audio version, but they're not available yet. Um, and uh, I look forward to assisting uh, any of your listeners in any way that I can. Outstanding. I appreciate it. And uh, listeners, again, go go take a, a look. Even if you're not in the education space, I promise you, uh, even if you're not in the education space, you're going to get a lot of value uh, leadership-wise out of this book. It is a fantastic book. Uh, it, it transcends just education all across all facets of leadership. So go pick that up. Uh, Dr. Travis, again, thank you for spending time with uh, me and my listeners today. I really appreciate you and I appreciate you having this conversation with me on the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you, Earl, for the opportunity. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X dot com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Acid. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid. Electric acid.